Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, where we're picking up in the middle of a story. Didn't you hate that as a kid when you're watching your favorite television show and a dramatic scene would happen, something suspenseful, bump, 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 and then suddenly the frame freezes in those three most hated words, right? To be continued. And so we're kind of in that space right now because Peter and John are preaching up a storm in the middle of Solomon's colonnade there in the temple under those beautiful, magnificent, towering marble colonnades. Now, just prior to that sermon, to bring you up to speed, uh, it was the 3 p.m. prayer service, you remember, from last week, right? And uh, Peter and John went in. Now, don't forget, there are 3,000 new born-again Christians in the mix, in the crowd. And so uh, all heaven breaks loose because Peter and John walk by this lame man who's laying by the beautiful gate, and uh, he's asking for some change. And you'll recall last week that Peter says, you know, I, I don't have any change, but how about a changed life? And so he raises him up right there, ankles that had never walked or supported weight, just totally withered and atrophied. And everybody knew this guy. He'd been there for many, many years, and that's very important to the text. Everybody knows him. The leaders know him. The congregation there at the temple know him. He's just a permanent fixture, and now he's leaping around, praising the Lord. A crowd gathers, and the Holy Spirit kind of nudges the apostle Peter and says, hey, Go get him, tiger. You know, it's time to, time to cast the net to fish men as he prophesied Peter would. And so uh, here's Peter's second uh, evangelistic sermon. The first one was rather successful. That's where the first born-again Christians happened. There are 3,000 of us. And now he's wrapping up the sermon. It started really pretty normal. Well, it's, he started out saying, why are you staring at us as though we made this lame man walk? And the lame man is clinging to them while he's starting his sermon, which was a pretty wonderful thing to have somebody right there. Uh, so the sermon really is just in consideration of his audience. They're, they're Jews. And so in consideration of your audience, you always adapt the gospel truth according to what would be most effective and productive for them. And so since they're Jews, he says, uh, he tries to uh, tell them and convince them that Jesus is a Jewish thing. It's okay to embrace Jesus. You're not betraying uh, Judaism. This is a, something that a Jew should do. In other words, he says, listen, Moses, Deuteronomy 18, he said a prophet's coming, that you better do everything he says and, and you'll live. And if you don't, you'll die. Deuteronomy 18. And then, uh, you know, all the prophets, really, and they're, they're, they're being mentioned all the time. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Uh, to a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that he would live and minister in Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 and 2, that this Savior would die for the sins of the world. Isaiah chapter 53, that he should be called God. 
God in human form, wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father. Isaiah, again, chapter nine and verse six. And so he convinces them, listen, Jesus is, is the fulfillment of the Jewish promise. And then he says, but you rejected him. You put him to death. This is the sermon wrapping up. But he's alive and he's the one who did this. And the guy's like, you know, the lame guy there is kicking up his heels and uh, showing his stuff there. And so, of course, the sermon was ending with an altar call. Now repent of your sins and turn to God, Peter says. Repent of your sins so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and you'll be prepared for Jesus' second coming your appointed Messiah. So that's where we left off in the middle of this wonderful sermon. This man who was once lame, leaping for joy. Uh, This is where now, and we wonder, and the music kind of gets a little suspenseful here because we're the temple authorities. This is where they hang out. They oversee the Sadducees, the elders, the Pharisees, the very guys that condemned Jesus to death hang out in this place and are the authorities over what goes on in that temple. So where are they? I mean, where's the opposition? That's what I'm wondering. That's what I was wondering the first time I read these verses. Where are the bad guys? Uh, They're here. If you can put it this way, Peter is getting away with murder. He's in their building, perfect acoustics, beautiful setting, thousands of people, and he's explaining to Jews how to come to Christ and be born-again Christians. This is wonderful, and nobody's stopping him until verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, it's a police force, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so uh, we're going to read half of the chapter. There are three little paragraphs we're going to look at. This is paragraph one. So let's pause and, and say number one would be the arrest. Okay, if you're taking notes, the arrest. Now your text says that Uh, these Sadducees and leaders, they set upon them. They come upon them. And the word in the Greek, the phrase, means to forcefully confront. In other words, they got up in their faces. This wasn't just arriving on the scene. They're mad, and they are showing some force. And while Peter's wrapping up, there's a sudden interruption. I mean, he's not even done talking. And that's worse than a cell phone going off, you know, or a little baby crying in hysterics to see these guys coming, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential men in all of Israel are coming down the pike, the colonnade, and they're get up in their faces. Now, they're, quote, and I love the way the ESV has it, they're greatly annoyed. <laughs> now, Now, two things they're greatly annoyed about. Number one, that they are teaching in the name of Jesus, and that name annoys them. Now, it still annoys people today, doesn't it? I mean, when I bring it up, I'm called very annoying. Uh, But, you know, you can talk about your higher power. You can talk about God. 
in general terms. You can say God bless you to anybody. Everybody says thank you. You, you say Jesus bless you and you're in trouble. Uh, <clears throat> talk about faith. Where would I be without my faith? Oh, people love that. But if you mention Jesus, people get annoyed. You can be into yoga, which is a form of Hinduism. You can wear your Buddha prayer beads. You can hug the trees. You can talk to the bees and call it all God. You can uh, talk about your last life, how you were reincarnated. You can talk about karma and ghosts and returning dead ancestors from the grave. You can talk about aliens. You can talk about UFOs, psychics, mediums, and Bigfoot. But watch it with the name of Jesus. There's nothing more polarizing than the name of Jesus. And I wondered about that. What is it about that name? Well, I'll tell you. It is associated with sins. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And so with the name of Jesus comes the understanding of lordship, surrender, that we weren't good enough, that we've all fallen short, that we're helpless, powerless, weak, sinful, blind, wretched. That's why when you say the, the name Jesus, what you're also do is, doing is shutting out all the other names because he alone claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father. So, you know, if I were a self-righteous religious person, I could understand why the name of Jesus and all the association with a Savior who must die for my sins would be annoying. So you see here the Sadducees now are just a particular group. The Sanhedrin or the Council of the 72 were made up of lots of different religious groups, like a parliament, you know. And these Sadducees, the second reason they're annoyed is because of their doctrinal difference with what the apostles are putting out there. They did not believe in the resurrection. I don't know how they're called the theological liberals of the parties, that they, they weren't real scriptural in their understanding. They didn't believe in angels. I don't know how you can read the Hebrew scriptures and not believe in resurrection or angels, but they did not. So they're annoyed. Why? Because they're, the apostles are proving that there is a resurrection. So it's two counts that really are annoying, doctrinally and personally, that name of Jesus. Didn't we just get rid of him? Didn't we just do away with that name? And here they are again, filling Jerusalem with that name. And so they put them in custody until the next day because now it's about supper time and it's against Jewish law to have a trial after sunset. So that didn't stop them with Jesus, of course. They made a little bit of a little uh, exception to the rule there. But uh, so they lock him up. But interesting, the Holy Spirit just wants you to know, you may lock up the messengers, but you cannot lock up the Holy Spirit. Because while they're being hauled off away, a, a haul of fish come in, 2,000 souls. Uh, you're locking up the guys, but but two thousand. You, you take two thousand. You, you take two guys to your prison, and the Lord will take two thousand of His to the baptismal tanks there. And that's exactly what the scriptures say. And so just a wonderful thing, you know. And then you have in verse four the two necessary ingredients for heaven. You have 
They heard the word and they believed. The word of God and faith. When that happens, there's conception and there's eternal life. Period, it's that simple. That's the gospel. Okay, five through 12. Okay, it's the next day. Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with some familiar names now. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, verse 26. And there is salvation, and this is a line you should memorize. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that's a mouthful. So point number two then, the testimony. So verse five, the, the golden sunlight comes up over Jerusalem and Peter and John are rounded up out of their jail cell. Now I just picture it, you know, they probably didn't sleep that well puffy-eyed, same clothes, bedhead, you know, a problem I don't ever have. Uh, but I just picture them hauled in. They didn't serve them breakfast. They didn't give them their Starbucks, nothing. They just haul them in and put them in a very intimidating place. Uh, so they haul them in, and we see court is convened. Now some familiar names, and as I said, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential and feared men of all Israel are gathered together. And these two backwoods fishermen from Galilee, uneducated, without money, without standing in society, they're thinking, oh, we're just going to crush them like bugs that they are. Well, it didn't go that way. Uh, Verses 5 and 6, we learn that this is the Jewish Supreme Court. If you're taking notes, Sanhedrin, the word just simply means the council. There were 72 of them, all from different little groupings, but 72 of them uh, called the elders and the rulers. And there you see Annas, the high priest, who was high priest with, when our Lord was crucified, and also Caiaphas. And, the, and his whole family of vipers. They're all listed there. They're really, really depraved people. Now, these are the very same guys who condemned Jesus. And this primarily, they say, is really where Jesus stood during his illegal trial. Same place. Would that embolden you or freak you out? I don't know. It would, I think it would embolden me to know this is where my Lord stood when somebody commanded him to be slapped in the mouth. How dare you talk to the high priest like that? And orders were given and they slapped the, the son of God across the face. Matthew 26 tells the whole story in front of Caiaphas. They mocked him, 
spat upon him, right where these three, and I do say three, it's Peter, John, and the lame guy. The lame guy is standing there. He's on trial too. You don't see that till verse 14. But we're going to talk about that because that's very interesting that they have to haul him in too. I find that very kind of very interesting. We'll talk about that. It's in that place where, where the high priest said to him, to Jesus, I, I command you under oath by the living God, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And just so you know, you will see one day me coming in the clouds on the right hand of God's power and power and glory. And they tore their robes in this place, same place. They would tear their robes. He's blasphemy now. He's blasphemed, I should say, because he has called himself equal to God. Well, this is the place, the three of them, in the text, in your Greek, it says, uh, set them in their midst. In other words, put them out front and center. And the Sanhedrin would form like a layered semicircle. So these three guys out in the front, and just picture the semicircle of seething, angry, self-righteous, sourpuss faces on these guys. Can you do that? All right, good. Now, what's, what, what is the lame guy doing there? Well, he's in trouble. Why? I can just hear him say, uh, excuse me, why am I here? <laughs> uh, I was just laying there minding my own business saying alms, 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 and bam, something happened, and now I can walk. And I got kind of happy about it, so I was leaping a lot and thanking God. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? You are in trouble because that's all it takes is because of you, because of your new life and leaping for joy. Jesus is being talked about. People are going to Jesus because you and your new legs. Well, I didn't mean anything. I just just used to be lame and now I'm not and I don't. Silence. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm just making stuff up as I go there. we just see it in my head, kind of unrolling, <laughs> unreeling or whatever. So Jesus healed me. I'm so sorry. I have a new life. But, you know, I call this the Lazarus syndrome. You'll remember in John 12, Jesus did a good deed by raising an old friend of his from the dead, Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man did. And then... Because the lame man was walking around and his testimony, listen to this in John 12, uh, the opposition is upset. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So it's not just leaders or evangelists. Who, anyone who has a transformed life. So, can you hear me all right? Yeah. All right. I'm fine with this. Oh, there we go. Are we back? We're up and running? Yeah, I like that. That's so, that was so much fun. Can we do it again? Not. <laughs> all right. So, there we go. Somebody's probably using a toaster in the neighborhood. Just, just, just stop with those paninis, you know? So it's not just the leaders who are in trouble, right? It's the guy who is shining his light. He's in trouble too. Lazarus is in trouble. Why? For living. For living. That's all he did. He said, look, I was dead. Now I'm alive. What what do you want from me? People are believing in Jesus because of you. So we're going to kill you. Well, excuse me. I'm sorry. I came to life. My apologies. What are we supposed to do? Amen? And listen, listen. The same is true with you and me. Oh, you don't have to say anything. You are testimony 
that if you want a new life, you can have it. But if you have an old life and you don't want the new life, the new life is a threat. So we have to make you go away. And that's all that's happening here. So uh, you remember last week I read that lovely letter from David Bullock who we shared the gospel with him. If you missed it last week, we were out on Castro Street handing out Bibles and talking to people about faith in Jesus. And uh, he believed and uh, he became a Christian. And he wrote us six months later and said that he had joined a church and that he was learning to praise God in his weakness and he was changing. He was starting to have warm emotions toward women. He was liking women. He was so excited. And then he signed it, you know, uh, P.S. Christ is the way out of gay. Now, in talking to him and others who have, have come to faith with same-sex attraction, and are leaving that and healing and walking with Jesus just like a regular Christian who ever has their own brokenness, he said, and others like him, they hate me, they slander me. Oh, I've lost all my old friends. I said, what, what, what did you do? Why? Because your new life says that I have a choice. I don't have a choice. He says, yeah, I, I do have a choice and I wanna be a Christian. I don't find that that behavior is compatible with my born again self. So, excuse me, but I've come to life and I like this. No, you're doing a disservice. You never really were. Yeah, I was, he said. I should know. And so he's not well received because why? Because people say, see, there is a God and we can have a new life. So he's got the Lazarus syndrome as well, too. And that's just the way it is. Now, you know... Moving on. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But just so you know, not everybody is thrilled about your light shining as you are. Amen? <laughs> In fact, Jesus said, this is the verdict. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Uh, he's been around. He's looked around. And the Son of God says, hey, I, I've got a conclusion. Here it is. John chapter 3 and verse 19. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil is annoyed by the light or hates it and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus, the light of the world, and that name is light itself. All right, so time for the hearing. It begins with a question, and you know, it's a pretty simple question, and I'm sorry, but I really don't believe that it's a genuine question. I believe that it's just a, a, a way to incriminate them, to tie themselves to the name of Jesus so that they can deal with them in the same way they dealt with Jesus. Because come on, really, uh, they're asking, by what power or in whose name did you do this? Seriously? <laughs> You really don't know? Of course, these, these guys know exactly what's going on. And, you know, I, I like to say that some unbelievers like to play dumb a little bit. I'm sorry to say, but it's like they don't know or I've never heard of that before or it's all new information. So somehow, if I feign ignorance, I'm less culpable. In other words, if I pretend like I don't know, then I'm less responsible before God. And so you want to know what they do know? You're not going to believe this. They know a lot more than they're letting on to. In Matthew 28, the Easter story, right? You know what happens? 
These guys, the chief priests, have sent guards to guard the garden tomb, lest the disciples come and steal away the body, and the first deception, uh, the latter deception will be worse than the first, so they said. So they send guards, right? An angel comes, rolls away the stone. He looks like lightning. The guards fall down like dead men, right? Matthew 28, they go to the chief priest, the semicircle, and tell them the whole story. Hey, bosses. An angel, looked like lightning, came down. We fell down like dead men. He rolled the stone away. There's nobody in there. His disciples were there. The angel's telling him, go preach the gospel, go preach the gospel. What are we going to do? The chief priests, these guys are saying, hey, well, what happened here? They said, to the elders, that's the rest of the semicircle. Hey, we're going to give you a bunch of money. Matthew 28, read it. We're going to give you a lot of money. And we, we want you to say, here's what happened. Well, we, we fell asleep. The disciples came. They rolled away the stone, even though it's two tons, you know? They're pretty strong. They fish, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and <laughs> they roll away the stone, and they steal the body. And then they're like, you want us to say we fell asleep on the job? Hey, if you get in trouble for it, if this news gets out, we'll save your jobs. Matthew 28, who's saying that? The guys in the semicircle. Oh, they know more than that. Can I go on a little trail of what they know? You know every time Jesus healed a leper, a leper could not go back into community without, by law, going to Jerusalem and showing themselves to the chief priests. So for the last three years, lepers have been filing in, saying, hey, (laughs) I need some certification. Leviticus 14, the guy sent me who healed me. What do you mean you were a leper? I was a leper. I didn't have three fingers here. Now I got fingers. (laughs) I want to go home and hug my wife and kids. Get busy. You know, well, who did this to you? You Yeah, some guy named Jesus. He didn't even stop. You know, he said, go do this. And then we went and here I am. Give me the paper. (laughs) Oh, these guys in the semicircle. Who fixed the torn temple curtain? The guys in the semicircle. That curtain, four inches thick, 30 feet wide. 70 feet tall, took 300 priests to maneuver it. It was torn top to bottom. Whose job was that? With the earthquake. How about the sun stopping shining for three hours from 12 to three while Jesus was on the cross? And then you have the nerve to sit there and say to these guys, how'd you do this? As if you really don't know, please. If I were standing there, (laughs) all right. That's another story. Wait a minute. All right, all right, time to shine. Since you asked, you know, Peter clears his throat and you know there are Holy Ghost prayers going up like this, just split second. God, I got this guy who's dancing around. They're saying, how did you do this? In what name? And you know, you know, 50, 60 days ago prior, he couldn't even tell a junior high girl at a bonfire about Jesus. So here he goes, he's in front of Caiaphas and Annas and all those wealthy dudes breathing down his neck. And they say, well, tell us the name. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit because you know what? It's just not one filling. It's multiple times. And he's filled up and now he has a helper. That's the name of the Holy Spirit. And he is filled and he says, and here's a nice paraphrase. He says, he starts out very politely. 
rulers and esteemed leaders. If you're actually going to charge us with some sort of crime for doing a good deed and healing a man who couldn't walk, and you really want to know by what power we did this or made this to happen, let, we just want you to know that the man can leap for joy because we use the name of Jesus. You know, the one you crucified, but the one that God raised from the dead. He's alive. He's the one who did this. This is his doing. Now, in closing, <laughs> I added that just because I'm a pastor. In closing, remember what Jesus said to you. And Jesus told them about the cornerstone in Matthew 21. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. And now it turns out that he's the foundation stone for eternal life. Because he's the name, the one and only name in the whole wide universe by which anyone can ever hope to be saved. Now, the cornerstone. He brings up Psalm 118, verse 26. Again, they've already heard that. Now, back in Jerusalem, when we went into Hezekiah's tunnel, we were on the ground level, and you can show that picture if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. This is uh, Main Street, Jerusalem. We're at the level of 2,000 years ago. There was a gigantic cornerstone left, and it's still there. And this cornerstone is what they would have built the temple with, right? But for some reason, the builders rejected it. And it got laid to the side, and everybody knew it was a landmark, the cornerstone. Everyone knew it in Jerusalem. The disciples walked by it. Jesus walked by it. In fact, David prophesied a thousand years earlier about this cornerstone that the builders put off to the side and said, two thumbs down, we're not using it which turned out to be like the foundation for life. So Jesus in Matthew 21 said, you guys, you know, you know, I'm that cornerstone. You know the cornerstone. The builders, you guys, the semicircle. You rejected the cornerstone for some odd reason, and now it turns out that it's the foundation for heaven or hell. That's what he's talking about, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you for the cornerstone. Now, there's no wiggle room there. There's no wiggle room. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone upon whom it falls will be crushed. That's our Lord and Savior's words. He said, watch it. Upon me, every human destiny hangs. You rise or you fall on the cornerstone. And, and this is what it says. And, and here's no wiggle room. There's no options. He says, there's no other name given by God under heaven among all mankind, there's just no other way. Now, the, the companion text of, to that, of course, is John 14 and verse 6 that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see? Now, it's a hard truth in a pluralistic, eclectic society. It's very offensive, but it's over and over again. There is a way to get to heaven. God provided it. He bled and died, God the Son. If anyone believes and receives that, they live forever. If they don't, they don't see life. It, that's the gospel, and it's very simple, but it's being attacked over and over again. In fact, there's a famous author who well, was a mega church pastor, Rob Bell, and he has started, first, there are many ways, because this truth is just too hard to fathom. 
So there must be many ways, many roads. Now, he was a mega church pastor, best-selling author. Then it came to, ultimately, no one perishes. Now, he's been called on the carpet on major news shows, and I've seen it with my own eyes. So nobody perishes. Yeah, love wins out, and that was the name of his book. Thirdly, just recently, now he's, and I quote here, he was at the Grace Episcopal Cathedral, and I'm using him because he represents a whole bunch of people who are all on board with the same ideas of, sorry, I'm going to pick him as the kingpin, all right? So let me, let me quote him. Bell declared at Grace Episcopal Cathedral, San Francisco, March 17th, I'm for marriage. Don't amen on this part, all right? It just uncalled for. So just let me read. I'm for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love, whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. I think the ship has sailed, and I think this is the world we live in, and we need to affirm people wherever they are. Now, the scriptures say just the opposite. We don't affirm people if they're on the wrong path or if they're doing something that is incompatible with Christian living. Uh, We are called, in fact, I have it written down, preach the word, listen, be prepared in season and out of season, correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to say. Well, come on, tell me there must be other paths because what about all those people without the name of Jesus? I would rather trust something I can't understand to the good Lord, who is good and the rightful judge of the earth, than to dismiss the simple truth that I have in front of me. And so the Bible says that we are to correct. Now, now, what is wrong with simply, if you've outgrown the gospel and and you like these new age thoughts, why not go to a center for religious living? There, it's perfect, let me, and I'm not kidding. There's God talk, there's Jesus talk, there's Bible talk, there's no hell. Uh, they embrace homosexuality totally. There's, there's multiple ways. There, there's everything you could want there. Why do we need to take New Age philosophy and then lay it on the scriptures and wrench them and say, this is what the gospel's truly saying? There are philosophies and churches and religious organizations out there that say exactly what you're saying. But don't, as a Christian pastor, then take what the world wants to hear, that there are many ways and there's no hell and that we can live any way we want to live, sexually speaking. Don't take that and tell me you can have your cake and eat it too. That's my only problem. Uh, If you're an adult, come to your own conclusions. Go to that church. They're all over the place. You'll be very happy there. But don't, as a Christian representative, take take the New Age philosophies and say, see, you can, it's saying that Jesus is really saying that because he's not. He just said, there's only one name. There's only one way. Well, what about, well, that's his business. I don't dismiss it or change it or say, because I can't understand the implications, so I'm going to change this. Well, I don't think so. That's not the way to go. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, you know, I tried. Let's move on. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in that name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. All right, so we're going to stop there. That We've seen the arrest, one, two, the testimony, and now finally, the reaction. Now, they're astonished. I like that. Uh, why were they astonished and what was it? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you what I think. What they saw and heard from Peter and John didn't square with what they knew to be the case about them. In other words, they're expecting two country bumpkins. They don't know the scriptures. They're going to be intimidated. We'll toss out a couple ideas and they'll be shuffled in their feet and averting their eyes and clearing their throat a lot. And they're just going to be feel this big. That's what they expected. So when the fullness of the Holy Spirit came and Peter opened his mouth with that peace, confidence, focus, anointing, he was anointed. He gathered those thoughts and he, with great skill and great uh, anointing, he handled that word of God like a sword that pierced through their hearts. And they were, they were dumbfounded. And they make the connection, you see there. Um, they say, hey, uh, there's something, uh, didn't we get rid of Jesus? And now we got two of them popped up right in front of us. You know, we killed one Christ and now we got two little Christs. They recognize there's something about them, the shine, the talk, the confidence. What is that? Oh, they put it together. Your scriptures say they, they connected uh, them and that other guy, Jesus. There's something very similar. That is really what we're called to do by letting our light shine. You see, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And it wasn't just two little Christians who popped up. It was 10,000 little Christs have now filled Jerusalem. Amen. That's my new word. Sorry. Jesus ought to rub off on us. That's the whole point, that somebody should look at you and say, man, why'd you, what was that about? Somebody was just in my office and the way they were telling a story about dealing with their child, it was so otherworldliness, I, I was moved. I, I didn't say anything at the time, but I, I sensed or I, I don't want to say I, I mean, I, I smelled the fragrance of Christ in the room. And uh, it just, I went home and I told my wife about it. Just when, when we act like Christ, especially in the backdrop of something that kind of showcases him against ordinary human inclination. In other words, when you're kind, you respond, you get insulted, and then you bless. 
People are like, whoa, what was that about? You know, I always brag about our brother, Chuck O'Daniel. When he was at the hearing, the woman, the drunk driver who uh, killed his wife, the mother of five in our congregation, he stood up to address the driver, and she was weeping. He had a line on his face, a piece, poise, and he addressed her by name and said, I just want you to know about a God who, for, who has forgiven me a lifetime of sins, and I extend that same forgiveness to you. It is not my place to judge you. My place is to forgive you and entrust your soul to God. Wow. There was a shine. There was a connection. Hey, where do we, where do we see that somewhere before? Oh, yeah, on a cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That kind of thing. So, you know, we're always looking for ways to let his light shine. And I love this. My favorite part is the, the semicircle speechless. They don't know what to do. And the lame, former lame brother is there. He has nothing to say. But he's just standing there, and they, they're speechless. And I just imagine him. He's standing there. Peter's talking. And the guy, and they all look at the lame guy, and he's like, <laughs> like, you know, and I could just see him kind of lift his leg a little bit. Like, he's a, you know, and what? Silent, unanswerable testimony of a transformed life. The silent, unanswerable testimony of a transformed life. I told you I was sitting down at a restaurant with somebody. I was sharing my faith. And they're just like very resistant. And I said, explain me. Explain me. I told you this just the other week. I said, I never raised in church. Hadn't gone to church. Didn't know much of the gospel. A little bit in my head. Very well-adjusted. Just a 19-year-old sinner. You know, I was out partying. I had my friends. And I walk into a bar. I'm not looking for God. I don't want to change. And I walk out of a bar, and I'm a born-again Christian. I believe in Jesus. I know there's a heaven. I know there's a hell. And I'm a different person. Explain me. Explain me. What are you going to say to that? And he said, you went crazy. <laughs> you lost your mind. <laughs> Well, why? I didn't lose my mind. I should, everybody ought to lose their minds then because you know what? I was a better son to my parents. I was more conscientious. I started to care about the way I was speaking and the thoughts I was thinking. I wanted to do good things and love people and keep the law and, and be a law-abiding citizen. Yeah, people should all have nervous breakdowns, Amen. That's not what happens when you lose your mind, usually. But they're always looking for something. So uh, the guys have nothing to say. The semicircle points to, you know, hey, let's take a short little recess, and we'll call you guys back in. I love what they say. They say, look, we can't deny what happened. Everybody knows him. Let's call him Benjamin. Everybody knows Benjamin. What are we going to say? have been here for years and years and years. By the way, you know why Jesus didn't heal him earlier? The longer he laid there the more familiar everybody became with him. Everybody knows Benjamin. What are we going to say? Jerusalem knows. Anybody who's ever been to temple knows Benjamin. They've seen the tiny little ankles. How could you miss that? What are we going to say? And so one guy said, just threaten him. Threaten him. So they come back. They say, hey, we command you. We're going to let you off the hook this time. It's your lucky day. But we never want to hear the J word out of you again. Never. Do you understand? And then he says, Peter says, I love this. He says, wow, that's a moral dilemma. He says, and I'm going to ask you. You're the expert. So I've got a question for you. Let's say somebody asks you 
in authority to disobey God. Should you? We'll leave that to you, but we think you know the answer. <laughs> I love these guys. So then he says, you know what? We're not going to obey you. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. How can we st stop talking about Jesus? And the other guy's dancing like this, showing his leg. <laughs> how are we going to stop? How, how? How's this guy going to stop saying, hey, weren't you lame for 43 years? Yeah, I was, but it's a secret. <laughs> I can't tell you how. Yeah, no, I don't think so. That's not going to happen. So we just want you to know, threaten all you want. You know, the word for threaten, very strong. It means like you want to die. That's what it means. And they say, yeah, do whatever you want. How are we going to? We can't stop. We cannot. So they dismiss them. That's just more threats, of course. And so, you know, one part of them, they're rejoicing. We'll see next week that they, they want to have a prayer meeting where they pray for boldness because they're intimidated, but they're also filled with joy. Uh, sometimes you just have to stand up because there's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name. Jesus said, I'm the only way. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life. We've got this truth, right? So we have to stand up. Let me close with an illustration I've used before. Um, just a, a wonderful memory for me. Many years ago, uh, uh, we were in San Francisco and Zach, our Zach, was in kindergarten in the public school. You might recall this story. Um, he came home from school one day and he said, Dad, what's Ramadan? Actually, he said, what's Ramadan? And I said, well, why are you asking? I'll tell you what it is. It's an Islamic holiday. And he said, well, Iman, Iman's mom came in with this big book. Uh, it wasn't the Bible. She was talking about God, Dad, and, and it was a different book. So which book is right, Dad? Our book or their book? Because he's a, he's a mechanical engineer, as you know already now, right? But he was one then at five years old. And he just wants to know. I know enough at five that two books that say different things can't be both right. So which one is right, Dad? Well, I told him which one was right because there's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. So I told him that. And, and all through his upbringing, I had to explain that to him and reason with him. And he's walking with the Lord. Now, I called the teacher and I said, uh, why do you have a Muslim woman teaching kids about Islam and reading from the Quran in a public school? I'm offended because it caused confusion to my children. Uh, and she said, well, it's just a cultural thing and that I, I, I wasn't to take it so seriously. I said, she had a Quran. She talked about God. She opened the book. She read and she prayed said, I have a problem with that. She said, well, I'm sorry. I said, well, you can make it up to me this way. I want to come in for Easter. It's a Christian holiday. You can bill it as a cultural uh, talk, and I'll come in and talk about the culture of Easter. And I'm bringing a Bible, and I'm going to tell your kids the Easter story. And she said, that's impossible. And I said, you want to know how possible this can be? And she said, okay, listen, I'll let you come in, and I promise you this is exactly what she said. I'll let you come under one condition. You do not mention the name Jesus. Wow. So I said, I just am asking a question. How am I supposed to talk about Jesus 
but not mention his name. So she said, okay, I guess that's reasonable. So she gave me a date. So I waited, and then I went in, and it was reading time. And all those cute little toddler kids, five years old, they're not toddlers, but you know, they're toddling around. And uh, we got the little chairs in a little circle, and I had a big Bible. And Zachary's all lit up like a Christmas tree. It was wonderful. And I sat down and said, look, boys and girls, I'm here to tell you about the story of the resurrection. Can you say resurrection? Resurrection. <laughs> and then I said, you know, here's a picture of Jesus. Jesus was on the cross. He died for all the bad things we did. And I said, by the way, boys and girls, we don't have to wash our hands before we open this book because when we open the book first and read it, it washes our hearts and hands clean. So there's a little bit of a difference there. And I said, here's this Jesus. He said he was God. Can you say the word Jesus? And, Jesus! <laughs> and I, I don't mean to be rude about the lady, but she was in the corner and it seemed to be like she was melting. I'm melting! <laughs> She was with, she had a teacher's aide with her, and they weren't talking about something, but I, uh, every once in a while you hear, Jesus, <laughs> and, you know, and so I went through the whole story, and I said, I told him, Jesus said, you know, you can come to heaven through him, believe on him, and you shall be saved, and then I said, let's pray, and I bowed my head and prayed, and, and I'll, I'll never forget opening my eyes and be so moved, because my kid and I, our eyes met. And I just kind of winked at him, you know, and he looked at me like, thanks, Dad, you know? <laughs> it was so nice. And, and you know, she, she really enjoyed it. She said afterwards, she said, you know what? I didn't think you stood a chance with 25 five-year-olds. Uh, five and I said, well, you know, I talk to five-year-olds all the time. <laughs> no offense. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's, you're like little big kids, you know? So it was really nice. She was warm and it really worked and she was very surprised. She ran into Barb at the supermarket and said some very kind things and said the kids really enjoyed it and I'm glad that it all worked out. So it was really nice for her as well. But you know what, folks? You're in JC classes, you're intimidated. How dare you? How dare you exclude this? How dare you speak something negative about a lifestyle? How dare you talk about Jesus? It's everywhere. You've got to stand up and be filled with the Holy Spirit, not in an obnoxious, unloving, unkind way. You've got enough of that. Amen? Let us be kind, gentle, respectful, but not move from the truth. Let's keep the truth in focus because it's the truth that sets us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love. Just hard stuff, but we know the Holy Spirit's here. He's working on our hearts, showing us how to think about these things. And we just pray, Father, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and help us to walk that fine line. Lord, just to, to, to not compromise, to speak the truth in love, that people would be blessed and come to know you, the one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.